The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Robert Meyer, author of The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters. From a fire in a nightclub in Kentucky to a motorcycle crash in Minnesota to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, history has shown that we consistently fail to heed the warnings and protect ourselves against catastrophes with devastating results. Despite having access to unprecedented amounts of information to help us foresee and protect against disastrous events, rather than Seeing decreases in damages and fatalities due to the aid of science, the worldwide economic cost and impact on people's lives from hazards such as hurricanes, earthquakes, and fires has increased exponentially through the early 21st century. Why is this, and what can we do to change our trajectory? Here to talk to us about this is Robert Meyer. Bob, welcome to the show. Good morning. Why do we underprepare for disasters? What can we do about it? And I guess what I glean from your book, obviously, is there is a real psychological component to all of this, as well as economic reasons for not doing something or underpreparing for disasters. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely the, uh, that's right. That's the, the, the major theme of the book is this idea that, um, uh, that, that one of the reasons that we have difficulty sort of preparing for disasters and why disasters keep happening over and over and over again is that our brains really aren't well engineered to deal with events that occur very, very rarely and, uh, and, but when they do happen can be pretty severe. So we have, um, our brains are engineered and we've evolved to the point where uh, we're, we're fabulously good at being able to make great decisions about day-to-day life, how to get to work, how to um, feed ourselves, those sorts of things. But suddenly when we try to apply that same cognitive engineering, that same um, mental wiring to thinking about um, disasters that might lie off into the distant future or distant threats, things kind of go haywire. And and often that same engineering, which helps us make good decisions on a day-to-day basis, often causes us to make very bad decisions um, about things that lie in the future. So how does that work? Why do we do that? I mean, what's the difference? What goes on in our brains so that we, you know, we do or we're able to, to to be able to take care of our everyday little disasters and plan for them and prepare and learn lessons from them so we don't, say, repeat things again? Um uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so um, one of the things that psychologists and kind of increasingly of the mind that the way our brains work is is that we have kind of two cognitive systems. Uh, one of which is sort of this automated system, which basically is our, our reflexive. It's it's the decisions that we make without thinking that we're making decisions. Uh, it's it's how we know when you know what when to turn in our car into our driveway or uh, or how to reflexively uh, uh, pick up things in the house. We we just kind of do these things without sort of thinking. And and what's great about 
about that is that kind of frees up a good part of our brain uh, for when, when we do have to think carefully about things um, uh, to use our mental energies for that. So when we have to kind of think through and reason through a problem. And normally, uh, well, for day-to-day decisions, we're really good at knowing when to use those two different systems. Um, so, for example, if we're driving to work, we kind of, uh, we, we know as long as the traffic is sort of okay, that we're kind of, we can be on autopilot and we can use our brains to think about the morning meeting. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if suddenly something was to happen in the road, like uh, uh, the, you hear the, see the, the, the uh, taillights go on in a car at front, all of a sudden we know we're instinctively to turn off that auto thinking and immediately start using our deliberative processes or our more thoughtful processes to try to figure out what happened and put the foot on the brake and so forth. Now, what happens with when suddenly when we find ourselves in extreme disaster situations, often our brains just don't know... Um, and don't know what, what, what to do at that point in terms of it kind of uses the wrong thing. So, for example, when it comes to, um, uh, for example, a nightclub fire is a great example where that's a sort of a situation where, where really what you should do is when you first see smoke or something like that, immediately you should head for the exits. But surprisingly, one of the things that actually often kills people in nightclub fires is that they don't immediately do that. What they do is they first start, start thinking through and try to reason through the problem and saying, hey, where's that smoke coming from? Hey, what should I do? Hey, what's everybody else doing? And it's those, and it's sort of trying to think through the situation when we should automatically react, which often gets us into trouble. So it's when we're kind of misusing their, our hardware to, uh, uh, to, that leads us to, to bad decisions. So what can we do about it? How can we kind of reverse that way of thinking? Well, the, the, the message that we come across with in the book is to say that, look, um, uh, the one way we can do this is to sort of sit down and think through what are the kinds of biases or the kinds of mistakes that we, our brains kind of lead us to make. And when, if we can kind of first start off and once we accept that our brains are wired to make these kinds of mistakes and we accept that they exist, then what we can do is sort of um, uh, think about um, making, uh, taking advantage of those mistakes to kind of engineer a better decision environment. Um, uh, as an example, one of the, the sort of the biases that we talk about in the book is this idea of simplification. Um, and the idea is, is that, that when, when we're faced with any kind of a decision, what we tend to do is, we, is our brains in, in, you know, instinctively try to simplify. So, for example... Um, uh, when it's the case that uh, if we're, let's say, a hurricane is coming in an area, typically what happens is the emergency officials all of a sudden will give us a long checklist of things we ought to be doing, that it might go on for two pages. It says, well, we got to put the dog away. we got to make, you know, uh, 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 reservations at a hotel. We have to fill up our car with gas. we got to do this. we got to do that. And the reality is, is that, that uh, people listen to that, but our brains basically tell us to, to start going down the list and something happens whereas once we do one or two of these things basically our, our brain tells us you're done okay so as a consequence um, uh, the, that the, the consequence of that is is that that often we tend to do uh, insufficient numbers of things so our idea is to say that rather, there's two ways we can deal with that problem one of which is to kind of pound people on the head and say no 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 you've got to go through the full list you know make sure you look through the whole list and and so forth people aren't going to do that I mean our brains just are not inclined to do that so what we should be doing is saying give that people are only going to be looking at one, doing one 
one or two things on the list, rather than giving people a checklist that has 50 items, why don't we give people a checklist that says, starts off with one item and says, if you're going to do, if a hurricane's coming and you're only going to do one thing, this is the number one thing to do. Once you've done that, then this is the number two thing to do and so forth. So in other words, kind of working with people's brains rather than against people's brains. So, Bob, I think, and as I, one of the things I think the hurricane example that you just gave is that we don't, we hurricanes don't happen that often, so we haven't had that much experience with them. I mean, I'm sure that has to come into play as well. So we sort of like generalize the whole thing, and you know, okay, we'll go in the basement. I forgot whether you do go in the basement or don't go in the basement, but there's an example. <laughs> there's a tornado, there's, uh, you go in the basement. But tornado, but, you go in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Uh, so, yeah, and that's absolutely it. I, I think that the reason why we're really good at learning how to drive to work is we do it something we do every single day. Uh, and, uh, and and the problem with rare events is we just don't have any any good rules stored in our brain. We're going to have to make them up on the fly. And sometimes what happens is, is we take uh, one of the sources of mistakes is that we take rules that are really good in some circumstances and kind of in a panic, we misapply them to new situations. Um, one of the kind of the really tragic stories that we talk about the book, in the book is the crash of uh, Air France 447, which was a, an airliner that was going from uh, Brazil to France um, two years ago. And uh, in the middle of the night, uh, a junior co-pilot was at the, it was at the wheel, and um, uh, and all of a sudden there was a, they went through a thunderstorm, and for for just a very brief minute, uh, all of the sensors went blank, and the plane went into, went off of uh, autopilot. And what the p- pilot did was kind of instinctively, if you're a pilot, you kind of know that when you're uh, in a kind of a crisis situation and the plane's about to crash, they have a thing called pull up go around maneuver, which is what you do is you put the the, the, uh, the nose of the plane up and you put the thrusters on high, and basically you, you pull up and you go around and you try for another landing. Uh, and so what, what the pilot did was sort of instinctively did that, okay, did that move kind of at 35,000 feet over the tropical Atlantic. And it turned out that if you do that at, the, at that particular point, it puts the plane into a stall and the plane just drops like a rock. And that's what happened. And then the plane crashed. Um, and so this is a situation where the, 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 he just had never had any experience um, dealing with a problem like that. And they took a rule of thumb which is really good for, for one circumstance and applied it into this other circumstance, which it, it wasn't appropriate, and the result was it was a horrible tragedy. Yeah. A major disaster, obviously. Yeah. Wasn't the, the pilot, the captain, either sleeping or in the bathroom? Or if, Yeah, if he was he in the bathroom at the time, and he came in, and uh, and, and, and he was, uh, and at the, as the plane was going down, they had no idea what was happening, because it never occurred to them that the junior co-pilot would have had the, the nose of the plane up, and, and, you know, just before it's about to hit the water, tragically, the, the, the pilot is finally, as desperation says, uh, pull the nose up, and then the, the co-pilot says, it's been up the whole time. And then, and then the pilot says, "Oh no, put it down, put it down." And uh, you know, and so then there was a crash, and it was a, it was a very very sad tragedy. And so I think a lot of our book is all about what are the things that we can do to make sure that those sorts of things don't happen. Um, that and and our our belief is is that we have to start by accepting the fact that look, we're going to be making these mistakes. Our brains are just not well engineered for these very very rare events um, and so forth. And if we can kind of first articulate a set of biases that we're prone to do, which we do in the book, 
um, then, then what we can do is use that as sort of a template for um, for how we can cut, how we or as a sort of guide rules for um, things that we can do to make decision environments a little bit safer for people. Yeah, and, and I want to apply that to some of the things we should be thinking about. I mean, some of the things that you mentioned, this, well, one of them was amnesia. We forget, you know, in terms of the lessons of the past, as you say, we do the same thing over and over again. If like a, something happened 10 years ago, a disaster, we seem to just forget about what we could have done or should have done and do the same thing again. I'm thinking of, you know, I live in, in Manhattan near the uh, twin tower, where the twin towers were and we rebuilt the whole city and in that, in lower Manhattan, are, are we repeating the same thing and, and building a, the freedom tower and, um, you know, 15 years later, is that yeah, an example? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's certainly. I hope uh, it's not. But problem that that you know, w- when there's a flood, uh, you know, everyone moves and and vows never to return, and then two or three years later, there's the houses are being rebuilt in the floodplain, or uh, and it's not just you know natural disasters. You look at the uh, you know 2008, 2009, um, you know, real, the uh, equities and real estate co- collapse, and uh, and after that happened, everyone said, oh well, we can never let this happen again, and all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're you know, some people think that we're kind of maybe moving towards, you know, yet another bubble and another crash, and these things kind of are very cyclical. And one of the points that we try to make out in the book is that the starting point on that kind of forgetfulness is that actually people um, have a pretty good memory for the event itself, um, that everyone remembers 2008, 2009. Uh, there's, there's very few people will forget 9-11. Uh, people in hurricane areas, they'll often have monuments that sort of are there to remind people of uh, past disasters. But what people forget is, 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 is what people lose is the emotional memory. Uh, what they forget is what it really felt like to kind of go through that particular event. Uh, and that, and that, that's one of the, a great example of a, um, of a human uh, trait, which is normally really good. That is, we tend to forget pain very, very quickly. Uh, you know, obviously, it's the case that if um, people uh, held on to pain, memories of pain for a really long time, uh, you know, women wouldn't have a second child. Uh, and so, so w- one of the things is that, that, that the problem with that is that's normally really good. But for a lot of these kind of rare events, it's really healthy to be able to remember just not the event, but to really remember what, what it was like in 9-11 uh, and what everyone felt like at that particular time um, and so forth. And that, unfortunately, is a very difficult thing to overcome. And so one of the things that we emphasize in the book is when you're sort of creating reminders of these events, make sure and do everything you can to remind people what it felt like to go through this thing. Just don't simply have um, a reminder of the event itself. Yeah, that is a good example. And I was um, actually one of my sons was here not far from where the event was happening on 9-11. And it was interesting because I didn't do what that co-pilot did on on the uh, uh, Air France plane. He walked outside of his apartment and saw, you know, the buildings coming down and people running. And I actually said to him, I've never had an, this kind of an experience, and I really don't know. I don't want to tell you what to do because I don't know what to do. So right, you're going to have right. to decide based on what your information that you have. Um and so, you know, I, I was glad that I did it because I didn't have the information. He did do what he was, what was good for him. And, uh, but just, you know, that is an example of what you were talking about. Another thing, though, is optimism. And I wanted to apply that to climate change because, sure, you know, and I tend to be that way too. I mean, we sort of have a tendency to underestimate like what can happen or that, you know, if we, you know, we just sort of let it go. And I think we do that with, particularly with climate change because, 
it's it's too far in the future. There's nothing that I can do about it now. I mean, we have all kinds of excuses. So maybe you could talk about that in in, in light of a potential disaster within the next right, five to right. ten years. So, so that's, it's, climate change is a really great example. Um, uh, we, we do a lot of work in South Florida and Southeast Florida in particular, which is, if, you, if you've ever been to Miami, it's kind of a crazy place where there's cranes going everywhere and there's these, all these condo buildings going up. And yet at the same time, uh, the, the, the sea level's rising. Okay? And, uh, and everyone pretty much knows it's, it's a virtual scientific certainty that within 100 years, a lot of the areas that where you see buildings are not are going to be underwater. Um, and so it, it's sort of a, it, and people have a t- are perplexed by how this could sort of be happening. Um, and, and I think it's a, it's a combination of a couple things. W- one of which is this, as you said, this inser- inherent sense of optimism. Um, once again, it's, it's a great human trait. Uh, we, we always want to be looking for the bright side of life. It's what keeps us happy on a day-to-day basis. And it's just not fun to think about uh, bleak futures. Um, so when people go down to Florida, it's just more fun to think about about the, the sunshine and the water and, uh, and the idea of prospects of retirement down there than it is to think of, well, maybe I would, shouldn't do this and I should, uh, you know, retire in Toledo. Um, that for a lot of people, not, not that there's anything wrong with Toledo, but, but for a lot of people, sort of the prospect of a, of a sunshine retirement is something which is really attractive. Um, and then, so, so in that sense, you, people just don't want to think through that, that, that the future climate impacts might be negative. Uh, and the other one is the fact that, as you may indicated, this is just so far into the future. Um, for most people, their planning horizons are, uh, you know, 10 years, 20 years, or what's a mortgage, you know, 30 years. And, and that would be kind of like the far out as people want to would, would really feel they need to go. Um, but so this is a threat that we're talking about that maybe is coming in 50 years. Um, and, and, and so, of course, what people don't think through is, is that if everybody thinks that way, then, then as soon as people start to get kind of worried about that 50-year horizon, uh, then all all of a sudden, everyone will start moving out, and real estate prices will start collapsing. But, um, um, but, but the, 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 as long as you're kind of optimistic and you see something that's way off into the distant future, there's a tendency not to want to think about it. So, one of the things that we talk about in the book is uh, what are things that you can do to get people to make um, sort of preemptive investments now against things that lie out in kind of the far distant future. And um, and one of the things that we talk about is um, trying to kind of spread the payments of these things out uh, over a, a long period of time so that it's not like all of a sudden today we have to pay a huge amount of money to build a seawall. Um, that if we kind of, if as long as it's seen as sort of pennies a day, we're putting a few cents into it, it doesn't seem like um, a huge investment into the future, yet over a long period of time it really builds so that when we really need it, the money would be in place. You also talk about the herding mentality. What what is that when you in terms of how we make our decisions or what we base our choices on? You say we base that on a herding mentality, which yeah, means what yeah. in this context? Uh, yeah. Right, and uh, so there is. I we kind of like to be able to have the, the, this idea that uh, that people are in pro, are, are prone to not have a good t- ability to look into the future. They're forgetful of the past, and when they're unsure what to do, they look to the advice of people who are n- no less informed than they are. And uh, and this is this idea of hurting. That what what happens is is once again, it's a good human instinct that if we're unsure what to do, we look to other people. Um, and there's kind of two reasons for that. Uh, one of which is, is even though it's the case that we tend to be optimists about the world, I think we often tend to be pessimists about our own ability of our own knowledge of
of a situation. And if we see smoke in a room, there's a tendency to think, and we don't know what's going on, we have a tendency to think that surely somebody here must. And, and we tend to instinctively look for who's the, the thought leader, who, who's, who has the knowledge. And the other thing is, is that just we're social animals. And so as a consequence, if we're unsure about what to do, that we're really reluctant to, to bolt from the herd. Um, and, uh, and, and as I indicated earlier, this is sort of the big problem with fire or emergency situations where you, 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 know, you really do want people to act independently. And if you have a threat, go ahead and leave. Don't kind of dawdle around and look to see what everybody else is doing because they don't have no better idea than you do. Um, um, often in, in hurricane evacuations, the, the, the greatest impediment to evacuations is the fact that, um, that people, their first instinct is to go and talk to their neighbors and say, hey, are you evacuating? And the other, then the neighbor says, well, I'm not sure. What are you doing? And so basically you have this process with people talking to one another and the result is sort of collective inaction. Um, so that's a situation normally hurting is good, but, uh, uh, but in some situations like that, it can actually be very, very bad. Yeah, and I, I had a, a guest on a couple of weeks ago who's sort of validating exactly what you're saying in relation to a terrorist situation where you get you're in a building or a nightclub or a restaurant, and people tend to wait for somebody to come and rescue them. And he said, which right, goes along right. with what you're saying, you have to leave. There's you yeah, know there's absolutely. no reason. Yeah, uh, which is exactly what you're saying. And 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 don't wait for the guy next beside you or the policemen to come and take you out of there because that's not going to happen. Absolutely not. Yeah. And uh, but the thing is, we really kind of want to emphasize is it's not that we, we try to end kind of the book on a much more positive note that rather than having to be this dour portrait of people unable to make decisions, I think for each one of these sorts of biases, we can kind of take it and say, well, OK, given that people are prone to hurting, how can we use that that instinct, uh, which can be bad in a positive way? And so in the same way that 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 uh, so so you could say that that it's also the case that if you see other people doing safe things or exhibiting safe behaviors and so forth, and we can develop sort of a social norm of safety, then it basically becomes a positive force. Um, so, for example, one of the things we talk about is um, uh, uh, is having seals of approval for um, uh, for for well-built houses that are built for, in particularly in hurricane areas, where where what it does is sort of builds a social norm where where it's prestigious to have the safest house in the block, and you have a, a safety seal of approval on it, and 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 that's a situation where we're kind of using this instinct to follow the herd, to follow other people in a positive way, uh, and where it's a it's a way of nudging people to become um, to have safer behaviors. Um, without actually forcing them to do so, but but kind of using our natural instincts. Okay, that's us, the general public. What about agencies, for instance, because you were talking about natural disasters. We were talking about all kinds of disasters. But uh, how can our government agencies, whether it's our city, town, state, federal government, can help us to do this or to expedite it or, or whatever so that we will be able and capable of acting as responsibly as we can in, in these kinds of disasters. Right. In fact, we, we do spend um, a, a good amount of talking about just that to, to that point. Um, I think one of the problems that, that often exists is that the, the, there's a disconnect between, uh, like, say, the agencies and, uh, and emergency management officials uh, uh, in terms of the way they think uh, and the way they think about disasters and the way they think about policies and the people who these policies are supposed to be applied to. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the beginning of the book, we talk about you know, a very tragic story of uh, during 
Hurricane Sandy, uh, a woman is at, at home uh, with her two children. Her, her husband is in a different part of the city. And, and at the height of the storm, she decides she kind of panics and she puts both children into a minivan and drives them uh, uh, to where she thinks her husband is um, along a coast road. And the, and the uh, storm surge uh, inundates the, the uh, or floods the car. And she tried to jumps out with the two children in her arms and the storm waves uh, take both children from her arms and, and they die in the storm and she survives but the children do not. And, uh, and we spent a lot of time thought, thinking about how that could have happened and what are the things that we could have done to have prevented it. And the point that we reach is, is that a lot of the storm warnings that, that were occurring during that were presented in very technical terms. Like, for example, they were saying things like um, uh, uh, in New York City, there'll be a, um, a storm surge of a 11 feet above mean low water. Uh, and, and these are kind of technical terms that, that, that just don't really mean a lot to people. Uh, uh, like, who knows how high their, their home is? Uh, who knows what, uh, what a storm surge is? Who knows what, you know, how high is 11 feet? Um, and, uh, and so as a consequence, you know, she, she, she was having this communication message, this form of communication, which was just, just wasn't, wasn't being expressed in terms that matter to her. Um, and so one of the things is that, that we kind of emphasize is that we have to stop thinking like scientists, like policymakers, and start thinking about real people. How, is it, how are the people who don't know much about storms and are prone to all sorts of, of, of human biases, how is it that they're going to be interpreting these messages and reformat the messages in a way that's meaningful to them? Yeah, that's great advice. We only have a couple minutes left, but that is so true. I mean, it works when you go to a physician and if they're presenting you with all kinds of technical medical advice on how to take care of yourself, do you hear it? No, it has to be put in in a in a context, or it has to be used the language that you can one can that the lay person can understand. So this, I guess, it applies is what you're saying the same way in this kind of a situation. I just want the ostrich paradox, why we underprepare for disasters. Uh, so Bob, where can we get the book and what website can we go to to uh, get more information about the well, book and it's, more information um, uh, about you know, your Whatever work? your favorite online uh, book retailer, Amazon, Google, um, uh, it's available there and you could get it uh, you know, in ebook form or in, uh, in um, um, paperback hardcover, whatever, uh, whatever is your pleasure. Right. And uh, do you, are you a lecturer? I mean, I know you're at Penn, you're a professor, et cetera, but what else do you do in terms of the general public? Is there anything that we can access to, to listen? Because we, you know, we, we were sort of the tip of the iceberg of what we covered today. Yeah, well, I co-direct a center in risk management and decision processes at the Wharton School at University of Penn and encourage people, if you're interested in, uh, in the whole area of risk, disasters, and human decision-making, um, come and check out our, our website. It's the um, uh, Wharton Center for Risk Management and Decision Processes at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and we're uh, always involved in a lot of work in this area. So if you're interested in psychology, disasters, uh, we're kind of the go-to place in, uh, in the Northeast. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm, bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is artist and writer Adele Paula Royce. She's the author of The Little Black Book of Suicide Notes. What could make a person feel that they can no longer go on living? Why would someone think that ending their life is the only option? And what's about those who have considered su- and what about those who have considered suicide and live to talk about it? Adele Paula Royce presents a semi-fictional look inside the mind and heart of a tortured soul on the verge of ending her own life. Through this raw and authentic tale, Royce shines a unique light on the human experience, leaving the reader more inspired to live life to the fullest and never take anything for granted. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Adele. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here and bring this out to the world and your audience. So, suicide. What does... What makes a person feel that they can no longer go on living? You know something? It's a very interesting question. Uh, I think the best way to begin this and answer to that question was I wanted to share my story with the world to let people know who are suffering, you know, that there is still hope. Excuse me. Um, I would say that after years of spiritual searching, I came to, and please don't take this in the wrong way, (laughs) I came to a realization that there really is no cure for suffering. And I felt I needed to tell it in a way that would take the pressure off of people to find a solution that doesn't really exist. You know, through the story of this protagonist, you can follow her through the process of realizing that suffering is basically inherent to existence and how she herself comes to terms with it. 
you know, it's kind of paradoxical, but the key insight is that although human suffering is innate, there's, there's the light at the end of this tunnel. And the suicidal tendency is based on a feeling of hopelessness. You know, and that feeling of um, not being able to experience anything beyond that feeling of hopelessness is a very frightening feeling for someone to experience, very painful and very frightening. And it's been my Well, you said you opened up, I just want to interrupt for a second because you call this sort of a memoir. It's not a memoir. It's semi-fictional. What does that mean? This is something that happened to you. This is part of your experience. I would say that it's a little bit of both. It's fiction based on life experience. You know, my teacher used to use a metaphor that was always very interesting to me. I mean, say you're in bed at night dreaming you're in Hawaii. You know, the question then begins, you know, are you in Hawaii or are you sleeping in your bed? You know, so like a lot of people, yes, I've had my ups and downs, and yes, I've struggled at times, but I found a way out and really wanted to share this with people. So part fiction, part truth. Well, it's, it's obviously it's about you, but then there's other pieces to it that are not exactly your story, I guess, is what you're saying. through the story of a protagonist with... Um, Life experience, you know, uh, interwoven through the the notes. You know, the novel's comprised of 27 suicide notes written by a woman on a spiritual journey from life to death to rebirth. You know, they aren't really conventional notes left behind, you know, suicide notes in a conventional sense. They're basically a series of reflections, uh, journal entries of a sort, that chart her emotional and spiritual journey as she confronts the question of whether or not life is worth living. You know, it kind of gives you an intimate look into the experience of hopelessness and the pain through her journey and highlights her desire to find a way out. So, yeah, and suicide, I mean, I, I don't think that I've really ever seen the title, you know, a suicide journal, because suicide is a ta- really a taboo topic um, in families um, where um, loved ones have attempted suicide or have actually committed suicide. It's still a taboo subject. We don't like to talk about it. We don't talk about it. Um, right, so, and I would say, yeah. you know, the the misperception of suicide is, you know, very common in our society. You know, the associate, uh, the associated element of craziness or insanity about it uh, is basically the stigmatized, you know, version of it. I even wrote about it in the author's notes section of the book. You know, some of the brightest minds of our times committed suicide. There are so many complex issues here, you know, that you're dealing with. I mean, guilt, shame, a state of hopelessness, feelings, you know, that there's nothing to live for. And it's the stigmatism that suicidal feelings mean that something's wrong with you. Well, guess what? That's not the case. And the book is trying to show people that it's not the case. You know, the doctor, uh, Dr. Gerald Epstein, who is my teacher, uh, wrote the foreword to this book. And, you know, it was a very interesting way in which he was very clear that these people, you know, it has nothing to do with crazy. 
You know, it's it's not um, a judgment issue. It's not a self-judgment issue. It's a stigmatized version of what society, you know, places on this particular word, this particular state, you know. And, I mean, another interesting... And I think... Uh, I also think that it's particularly now... Happiness is the, you know, the expectation for some reason in the past, let's say I'll say 20 or 25 years, but definitely, (laughs) is that everyone should be happy and the expectation is that we should all be happy all the time. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but not really. If you go to the bookstore, how many books are there on happiness and how to achieve it? So, you know, if you, if one feels that, hey, I'm not doing that and I'm suffering, as you say, but suffering is a part of the human condition, there's something wrong with, and I don't feel that, uh, it really does become a very depressing situation and you're kind of like juxtaposed with all this happiness stuff going on that you're supposed to be experiencing and you're not, or we're not. Well, the interesting <laughs> paradox to that is <laughs> very interesting. You know, the book was launched on Valentine's Day and, uh, you know, it may seem contradictory to launch a book on Valentine's Day about suicide, but it was actually very appropriate. I mean, Valentine's Day is one of the gloomiest days of the year for those who are suffering. You know, in fact, uh, the research really does show that the suicide hotline numbers get more calls on Valentine's Day than most other times of the year. And to your point, Catherine, you know, one of the biggest issues is that people with suicidal thoughts and feelings have the societal pressure that, you know, you should feel happy, you should be in love or some other positive emotion. But it's really important to understand that, you know, it's okay to struggle, it's okay to feel blue. You know, even if it seems at that point in time that the whole world is seeing roses. You know, my message for people who might be struggling, you know, is that it's really important to love yourself, you know, than it is to say even love someone else or even feel loved. You know, loving yourself is something that you don't have to rely on anyone else for. It kind of gives you an inner freedom, you know, that does shine a light into a very dark corner. You know, I did um, a lot of reading and research prior to, you know, the process of writing this book. And, I mean, you take someone like Viktor Frankl, who was in the concentration camps. I mean, basically, when you look at a person like this, you know, he said the only thing that a captors couldn't take from him was his inner sense of freedom. You know, this is not something, Catherine, that can be, you know, surgically removed. So what we're really doing here and what my intention is, is to take a journey from enslavement to freedom. And that's kind of the trip that this book is taking you on, which is the first book of three. It's going to, you know, be a trilogy. And this is part one, book one of that trilogy. And this so if you started the next, have you, are you on the second part? Of the, have you started writing the second yes, part of the book? Yes, the, yes, yes, yes. Very and interesting. And so what's, can you tell us like the difference between say, well, you have the, these, uh, the 27 entries, um, and now is the second book is going to be in the same format or different? Well, it's very interesting. It's going to be um, similar format. Uh, the Little Black Book of Suicide Notes is, 
you know, the first book of the planned trilogy, as I said, and the two books to follow will include Notes from the Beyond, and then the third is going to be Return to this Mortal Coil. So we're going to take a journey together, like I said, from enslavement to freedom. You know, this book is the first part of the trilogy, which is kind of exploring life, its trials, its tribulations, and its misconceptions. You know, next, we're going to go on a journey through death, and we're going to explore with those who have died tragic and intentional deaths by their own hands, and kind of find out, speak to these people in a novel, you know, about what is beyond. And then, third book, we're going to travel back to find, as the subtitle to this book is, to come back to life in a new way. And... You know, we all do get a chance in this life to write our very own life story, you know, write a new scroll, so to speak. And I think that the issue is just maybe at times we just don't know what that picture looks like yet. So I would say stay tuned for some fascinating ideas and experiences coming everybody's way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it does sound fascinating. Very interesting. Well, getting back to this book... Uh, the little black book of suicide notes. What was the response to that? First of all, to the title and to writing something like this, because it is quite unique in well, the context I that nobody think... wants to talk about suicide. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to talk about happy, happy, happy. But, you know, I mean, the response is that it was an interesting, you know, kind of engaging and charismatic response to um, be perfectly honest with you, um, people were curious to find out about what was going on inside of this little black book. So um, I filled it with a lot of very interesting to meet expectations of what people might think they would find. You know, there was one interesting part where um, it's in the book, and it was based on Albert Camus' quote, which is a phenomenal quote, and I used it in the book. Um, He was, uh, I don't know if your audience is aware of Camus' work, but he was a French philosopher and writer. And the quote was from the myth of Sisyphus, where he explores the Greek mythological figure pushing a boulder up and up and up over this hill, and every time he would reach the top, the boulder would come flying back down on him. You know, so I believe that our job in this life is to keep moving forward, and little by little, one fine day, with enough courage, (laughs) you know, that boulder makes it to the top and remains there. But it's only then that one can kind of answer for themselves the fundamental question that Camus actually proposed, because you've experienced it for yourself. And when a person begins to journey inside of themselves, I truly believe they might be very pleasantly surprised as to what they might find, you know, rather than just thinking that, hey, is life, you know, just more than pushing a boulder up a hill? Is life, I remember actually being forced to have read it in boarding school, (laughs) so it was a long time ago, and that's the truth. It's almost like the little engine that could, too, if you want. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it could. And it could, right, and it did. So, but we keep, you know, experiencing, or we we feel, I guess it's an internal emotional thing, we keep feeling like we're being defeated and defeated, and we get to a certain point, and then we're defeated again and again, so... 
we have the capacity, I guess, as human beings, as you're saying, to overcome that, to not experience those constant defeats all the time? We sure do. You know, many of us live in what I call a false state of emergency. And just to define a false state of emergency, from my experience, is reacting to something that feels real, but is not in essence true. You know, my teacher, again, would always give two great examples, you know, to me, which I believe would make the point. You know, one true state of emergency could be if someone were pointing a gun to your head ready to pull the trigger. Another might be if a grizzly bear were coming toward you ready to attack. Now, those are true emergencies, life and death situations. However, when one is full of fear and pain and anxiety, and suffering, even though they aren't actually under any real kind of threat that might feel real to them because they're experiencing it, but by no means is that true. So through this woman's story, you can learn that you don't have to live this way, that there is another way other than a destructive way of living, you know, and coming to a realization, you know, that you can, in essence, live a more balanced, sane, and simpler life. Yeah, I think that's that that's a that's a very important point because you do or one sees and particularly as a social worker a lot of people who seemingly they have their health, they have fairly good relationships, they have a job, they live in the United States, you know, you can there's a list and yet they feel defeated and depressed and unhappy and hopeless or helpless. And then on the other hand, you can have people who have really a 180 from that and really feel good about themselves and who they are and where they are in their lives. So That's right. I mean, you can go to third world countries and find children that are laughing and you can look into their eyes and see sheer joy. And yet you can come here, you know, to the States, and I just use this as an example. And, you know, from my own experience, look at the Hollywood set. I mean, everything, you know, some of, as I say, in the book, some of the most famous minds of the century have, um, you know, died tragic and intentional deaths by their own hand. Now, they had everything to live for, you know. I mean, members of the 27 Club, all of the musicians, you know, that took their own lives, all of the artists, the philosophers, I mean, the Hemingways, the Van Goghs. I mean, even today in Hollywood, you know, I mean, you hear of stories that are just jaw dropping and these people have the world at their fingertips so it has nothing to do you know again from my experience with any type of economic situation any type of um, outside outer world situation this is basically what I consider an inside job yeah, it's, it's internal. Uh, but I, I want to go back to because those examples are good ones, musicians and scientists and people. But they also, I think, set higher internally. <clears throat> they're setting higher standards for themselves, which ultimately maybe leads to their ability to be so successful and so productive and so right. creative. I mean, and it's, you know. That's a very good point, a very good point. And then you look at the other end of the spectrum, you know, and I'm sure you've come across this, you know, from your professional life. I mean, the demographics are off the charts. You know, you're, you're looking at some, I did a lot of statistic reading and, 
you know, the suicide prevention hotline numbers. I mean, you know, children of demographics, you're looking at 10 to 13, 13 to 15. You know, this is just something that's mind-blowing to me that the society has come to a point in time where this has become epidemic proportion. I mean, if you look at the military, you know, um, suicide is now ranking combat deaths in certain areas. So it is something that really needs to be to the forefront. Um, it needs to be spoken about. You know, pain is something that people shy away from. You know, there was a, a review, actually, that I read about the book, my book on uh, Amazon, and someone very poignantly stated, you know, they were almost afraid to read it and because they shied away from the topic, but they decided to, you know, give it a go, and they were so glad that they did because they found so much hope and so much light at the end of a tunnel that they really didn't think or could exist. So basically, as I say, it's a book journeying from, you know, the first book is broken down into three parts, and this isn't the trilogy, this is just the first book in and of itself. And the first 16 notes are going through various states of mind that might bring a person to the brink, you know, to the end of their rope, so to speak. The second part is based upon biblical scripture, and it's called the Ten Commandments of Suicide, and those are ten notes, all based on biblical scripture. And there's a relationship to, you know, uh, the Bible, the Gospels. You know, I say one of my favorite books is the Bible. You know, I keep it at my uh, night table. And when I'm inspired, I always read it. Which Bible, the New Testament or the Old Testament? The entire. (laughs) The entire. Culturally, I should say the Old Testament, but in essence, it's all of it. Um, What I could say is that, you know, I wasn't at the table, you know, when they were writing it, so sometimes I think it's a brilliant piece of wisdom literature, and sometimes I think it's a brilliant piece of literature, you know, but um, the Bible is um, giving me the uh, relationship of certain elements of love and life and death and, and where that takes you. So those were the next ten notes of the book, which leave left one note, you know, uh, which is the last note in the book, note number 27. And that I'm going to leave alone right now. I'm going to leave that for your readers to kind of um, delve into and see what they come up with. It might be very, very interesting uh, subject matter for them to delve into. You know, sometimes with these subjects, you like to dig a little deeper than normal, and uh, sometimes you strike oil. Exactly. And I, I want you, and this is a little bit off topic, but you were talking about uh, things that are, for instance, if somebody has a gun to your head, that's a real serious, that's a serious a life and death situation. Right. Um, but there are other kinds of situations aren't really that we just create them ourselves. What about, and then you went on, to, you're talking about the demographics of from, you know, 10 year olds or teenagers to, I don't know if you mentioned this, but really 90-year-olds contemplating suicide. What about this bullying? We only have a few more minutes, but how does that fit into all of this? I mean, because obviously you've studied a lot about suicide, you're writing these books. What, I mean, because that's a really big issue today in terms of teenage suicides, for instance. How do you, over given, 
um, the way you see it, how would you overcome something like that that's so pervasive? You know, I think that once again, it's just a learning process. I think it's um, bringing it out to the forefront of society and having more conversations, you know, maybe getting into groups of more like-minded people um, might be an aid in something like that. You know, there are forces that always have opposites, okay? You wouldn't know, Catherine, light if you didn't know dark. You wouldn't know hot if you didn't know cold. You know, I mean, this is just a fact of life. Everything has an opposite. You know, what we're trying to do here is to kind of synthesize it and bring it to a third point that something very beautiful might come out of. And when you're talking about things such as bullying or things of that nature, you know, I'm not really sure about how that plays out in the minds of a child, you know, or in the mind of children, but I would say that, you know, parentally people might need to just have more discussion. It might need to just be more prevalent than it is in terms of talking about it. That's the best way that I can, you know, describe it. I think yeah. that, you know, the hiding under a rock is not going to cure or save anything. The same way I could make the analogy that the person who wrote the uh, write-up on the book, you know, online, said that they shied away from it because they were afraid of it. A lot of people, when they're in fear, want to run and hide in a closet. This is not something you can put under a rock. This is something that might have been under a rock or hidden in a closet, but this is something that needs to be brought out into the light and, you know, see what's going on there. And it's then and only then can you really make heads or tails out of it and find some sort of a solution to an otherwise dark and dismal corner of existence that actually does not need to exist once you realize how the game of life is played and you can get out there and really experience it's, you know, in quotes, the movie, you know, it's, it's a wonderful life. You just need to have a little bit of courage to take that key and unlock yourself from whatever well, that's it is a good, you might that, be We feeling. have 30 seconds left, and that is a great way to end the show. And I, and I want to mention the book again, the title of the book, The Little Black Book of Suicide Notes, Adele Paula Royce. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Um, Thanks yes, so much for being on the show. This is available yes. on Amazon uh, in um, e-version and paperback. It's also available at Barnes and Noble, and uh, you can go to my website www.adelpolaroyce.com. And another Great. treat: the audio book. I was just informed is coming out uh, within the next week. Um, I believe within we the next four We have to say goodbye, Adele Paula Royce, Little Black Book of Suicide Notes. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.